If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum is one of the minor prophets right after Micah. Yep, right after Micah. Right before Habakkuk. Our text tonight is verses 1 to 3, but actually just the first part of 3, where we have this view of God that is given to us. Nahum is a book that, uh, praying about what we were to do next on a Wednesday night, on our Wednesday night service, Nahum seemed to be one that we need to go over as well, because Nahum really continues the account of what we found in Jonah, whereas Jonah is sent to Nineveh in order to preach, and they repent and all of that. This is sometime later where this prophet is now prophesying against Nineveh, prophesying of its destruction, of the Lord bringing vengeance upon them. This is really, this is God's call of of judgment against them, of his wrath being poured out on them. There is a lot of, uh, as one theologian had put, there's a lot of war poetry in this, in this small book. And this is a very small book. It's only three chapters. I think it's the second, the second shortest book uh, in the Old Testament, the first being Obadiah. But there is so much imagery that is given in this book, so much uh, wartime language of God, uh, his patience being ended his grace being ended and now he is going to pour out his wrath upon a people that once received his grace jonah had prophesied probably in the mid of the 8th century bc and depending on which commentary you're reading or which theologian that you're reading some estimate that this this account here of nahum is taking place somewhere in the realm of 663 B.C. down to 612 B.C. The prophet is now prophesying against the city that once repented. Really, the whole nation is in view here. Assyria. And God is pouring out, getting ready to pour out his wrath. Now, in these first three verses that we have here in this, this small book... Nahum is really setting the foundation for everything else that we're going to be reading because he is establishing a particular view of God. Before he gets into the wartime poetry and the wartime language of all that God is going to do and the the magnitude of his being and all of this, he first establishes the God who is bringing this judgment, who has declared war against Assyria. And that is in the first three verses, really. There is much more to say. But when you think about this city and God bringing this kind of judgment upon them, I mean, this is very strong language that is here. Sometimes this language has, to some people, just been very appalling that this, this sort of thing would be said of a particular people, that God is going to destroy them in this kind of a manner. The language is very strong. But at the same time, if, you just, if we begin to just consider Assyria, Nineveh, 
and just how wicked that these folks are. When, especially when you're reading through First and Second Kings, in the Second Kings, you you see not only had they taken the northern uh, ten tribes captive, but now they have turned their sights on Judah. It is one thing uh, they were they were once used as an instrument of God's righteous anger against the northern kingdom, but now it seems as if they've gotten too big for their own britches, if you will. And they're going beyond what God had first appointed them to do, and now they have turned their sights to Judah. And if you read, of course, in, in those books of 1st uh, and 2nd Kings and others, that Hezekiah had to deal with the Assyrians. You read of men like Tig, Tiglath-Pileser and, 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 and Sargon and, and Shalmaneser and all these different guys, these kings of Assyria that are making war against Judah, or at least trying to, Sennacherib and others. So this is indeed a people that are now worthy uh, by what all has taken place, now worthy of God's righteous indignation, his righteous judgment. It was very interesting reading some of the accounts of some of the kings of Assyria and, and just the horrible things that they would do. And, and as they would chronicle their wars and, and their battles and their victories and all of this, that one in particular had talked about how he had, he had cut a man up, cut his arms off, and then with some they cut their noses off, and with others they had gouged their eyes out, and with others they had taken their adolescent boys and girls and burned them, and all kinds of just horrible things uh, by these kings of Assyria. This isn't a... Uh, this isn't an innocent people here. This is a great enemy of God's people and a great enemy of God himself. And that's why this language is being used through here. But some of the things that you look at when you're reading through here, it, it, it's, it's kind of puzzling at times. Because if this is, let's say it's 50 years later, uh, between 50 and 100 years later after Jonah, these subsequent generations of of the people of Nineveh have gotten this wicked and all of this. And it's like, why is it that God waited so long in order to bring judgment upon this people? The, the northern kingdoms were sacked by Assyria in 722 B.C. Assyria is not going to be conquered by the Babylonians until around 612 B.C. Now, the people in between this time, living in between this time, may have those questions. Why hasn't the Lord done anything? Why isn't the Lord taking vengeance? Why isn't the Lord vindicating his name? But the great hope that is given to the people of Judah in this particular book is that God is absolutely going to do that. Not in their time, their particular way or the, their particular time as far as how quickly they would want it done but God is absolutely going to vindicate his name and that really to, to see these instances in the Old Testament to see how it is that the Lord pours out his wrath upon a nation that in the sense that his his grace has ended and now it is time for judgment seeing these things in one sense even for us today, now this, some people think that this book has no application to any other people because it is written about Nineveh, about Assyria. But this book in particular really gives us a great picture of God's 
in judgment, that he will vindicate his name, that he will right everything that has been wronged, that he will vindicate his people in addition to vindicating his name. We have that hope and we have, we have you know, th- that, that view of God that he will one day do these things. We trust that he will set all things right. And how can we trust that when we see, we see instances like this and this is what gives us encouragement and this is what gives us comfort. Even when it seems as if the people of God are being overtaken by, by a wicked people. And maybe it seems as if at times that the people of God are overcome by them. We can rest assured that God is not absent. That God is not powerless to do anything. But that he will vindicate his name. And we learn why. In the first couple of verses here in Nahum. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. And we will read Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 to the first portion, the first half of verse 3. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Let us give our attention to it. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this picture that we have of, of your very character, your nature, that gives us hope. And gives us comfort. Father, let this indeed give us a greater view of who you are. That you're not a a weak God. You are strong and mighty. And you work all things in your time. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And may it bless our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of the language here is language that we've heard before in other portions of God's word. He really sets before us, and and as he he is giving this oracle against Nineveh, he really sets at the very beginning of who God is, his nature, his character before he begins to express any, anything else about what God is going to do and his power and his might and all of this. He's going to use language that would cause fear in the hearts of his enemies. We'll get into this next time, but, I mean, he uses this language like in, in whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence and it goes on. This is speaking to to his enemies of the God who is coming. The God who who is going to render judgment. Who is going to take vengeance upon them. 
he establishes these truths from the very beginning. And some of the things that he says here are very interesting, considering what he says first off, and then what we find in the first half of verse, uh, verse 3. This is an oracle of Nineveh, or as some of your translations say, the burden of Nineveh. This is written by Nahum, the Elkishite. Um, just a few things real quick, because we're not really told a whole lot about Nahum. Uh, he, he is, his name means comfort or consolation. Uh, as far as the place in which he lived, Elkish, really nobody knows where it's at. Some, some think that perhaps this is a city that was in Galilee somewhere. Others, it, it just really depends on who, who you're reading. And that, and that really says something as well, that there's not a whole lot of information given about this man. We don't know his trade. We don't know his parents. We don't know anything about him. He's Nahum the Elkishite. He's not one that, that has the pedigree of some of these other prophets that we read of. And yet what he says is indeed truly amazing, astonishing about what he says about the Lord and what the Lord is going to do against the great enemy of his people. That really tells us something, though, in and of itself, is that, that it's not about the messenger. It's not about the pedigree of the messenger. It's not about what kind of, what, what kind of family he come from, any of that. It's about what he says about the Lord. And that's the way that it is for any person who is indeed a messenger of the Lord or one who speaks on behalf of the Lord, any of us who share the gospel with others. It's not about how, it's not about our credentials as to give us even more, you know, sway with someone. It's about the one whom we speak of. It's about God. It's about what God's going to do. It's about what God did. And sending Christ and all of that. But here's what he says. He begins. He says, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. First thing he says before he begins this burden of Nineveh. God is a jealous God. That's language that we know. This is language that we've, we've heard before uh, concerning you know, the children of Israel with Moses, that he is a jealous God. He is zealous for his own glory. It, it is this here, understanding this, that, is, that gives us that hope and, and that, that, that looking forward to the day in which God will set all things right because, and it, it is because he is a jealous God. He is zealous for his own glory. That he will not give his glory to another. And if you have a wicked people that have conquered his people or that overcome his people or that have trampled his people down, however you want to describe it, that this is not going to go left unchecked by the Lord because he is zealous for his own glory and he is zealous for his namesake. He doesn't give his glory to another. The enemy does not have the privilege of conquering the people of God, if you will, and then rejoicing that they have, that they have put out the, the, the people of Yahweh, the people of Christ, whatever you want to say there, however you want to describe the church. 
They don't get glory. Instead, because God is a jealous God, because he is a vindicator of his, of his own glory, instead what we will find is that God, when he raises up, that sudden fear will enter into the hearts of his enemies. Because God is a jealous God. There are no other gods before him. That's the very thing that we read of in, in the Ten Commandments itself. No other gods before him. He's a jealous God. He doesn't give his glory to another. He's definitely not going to give his glory to any wicked people of his creation that think that they have conquered him or are victorious over him or his people or any of that other nonsense. We think of this perhaps, and sometimes we think of God is a jealous God, but that just doesn't sound right. It just doesn't sound right to say that God is a jealous God. We think of jealousy, and this isn't, this isn't something to, to rejoice in. This isn't something that you want to have as part of your character. To be jealous, who do you think you are? But when you think of the infinite, holy God, you think of his uniqueness. You think of the fact that he is altogether separate from anything that we could ever know or anything that we know in this particular time. He is altogether separate. He's high and above all of, all of that that's encompassed in that word holy. The fact that his creation, any, any creature would give any attention to something else that is, that is below him. Of course, he's going to be jealous. Because he is the infinite God. He is the unique God. He is the holy God. He alone is worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of service. All of this, no other created thing compares to him. And so in that, he is zealous for his own glory. And because he is, he is a jealous God. Because he is, he is an avenging God against his enemies this word is used three times just in that that second verse there that he's a jealous and avenging god is the lord the lord is avenging and wrathful and the lord takes vengeance on his enemies again he is not a god who is idle he is not just sitting wondering what's going to happen as he sees as he sees the wicked trying to, to tear their fetters and all of this language that's used in the scripture, trying to, to silence his people and trying to slander them, persecuting them. He isn't, an, he isn't a God who is just sitting idly by. Again, because he is a jealous God, he will right all the wrongs. And when he does, he does it on a grand scale to demonstrate his power. To demonstrate his might. Just how great of a God he is. We think. And, and I think. We have a hard time. Wrapping our minds around things like this. Because. We, we just haven't seen it. In our own lifetime. We haven't seen. Things. Uh, to, on this, this kind of a scale. When it comes to what God can do from one nation to another. 
Some, in some ways we have. But really we think of America as being, I don't know, maybe separate from that, excluded from that. We always see America as this great superpower and, you know, doing what they did in World War I, World War II, and et cetera, et cetera. We think, man, America, you know, we're, we're pretty awesome. So it's, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around what the Lord might do when it comes to this nation. Because that's something that we just, we just don't see. We, we don't think of it being... Uh, or we don't think that it could be. But if you begin, once again, to look back into Scripture, what has the Lord done? You take the massive empire, the great, mighty empire of Assyria. What did he do? He brought it down. He raised up the Babylonians. One of the great superpowers of the ancient world. What happened? He brought it down. He raises up the Persians. He brings them down. He raises up the Greeks. Raises up the Romans. You think of Egypt, what he did to Egypt. I mean, the Lord has done this continually throughout the history of, of, of mankind. He raises up empires. He levels them down. Why does he do that? Because he is a jealous God. And he is an avenging God. Now when we talk about vengeance, we're not talking about the same thing that, that we usually say, or that we actually caution each other about. We say, you know, don't take your own revenge. And we shouldn't take our own revenge because the scripture tells us that the Lord says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. How is it? that the Lord can do these things and we can't. Well, one, the Lord does not react in the same way that we do. He doesn't fly off the handle in some kind of an, uh, being emotionally charged and, and then begin to just level people out. He does avenge, yes. He is proclaiming war on Assyria here, yes. He is bringing judgment, yes. But the very thing that we read of is this, that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, thinking of these statements, what does it say about the character of God? Again, one, he doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. That's expressing to us the righteous nature of God. That he renders accordingly. He renders correct judgment. We don't do that. Anytime that we're wronged, that's one reason why the Lord would say, don't take your own vengeance or revenge. All of that is because anything that we do to the person after we've been wronged is going to be well beyond what they deserved because we're that angry. And so we can't render correct judgment because we're always emotionally charged by whatever it is that's happened. The very thing that we're finding here is that the Lord is slow to anger. That is a 
very interesting things to say. Because here, God's grace has ended. His patience is ended. And now it's time for judgment. And yet the prophet says he's slow to anger. How can that be? Think of how long that the Lord has put up with this city, with this empire. He sent Jonah there, first off, demonstrating his grace and his mercy. They repented. And the Lord relented from bringing calamity upon them then. And it seems in between that time and the time in which the prophet here is prophesying that the subsequent generations that came thereafter did not keep the faith of their parents, but turned aside to idols, turned aside to wickedness. And God had given them, even from the time that they had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. until this particular time here, he has given them a huge amount of time in order to repent, and they haven't done it. In the first moment that they turned back to idols, the Lord could have said, you're done. Here I've shown you grace, and now this next generation, you've turned back to idols, you've turned back to this wickedness, and now I'm going to end you. But he hasn't done that. He has waited years and years Let's say 60 years. He's waited a long time in order to bring this oracle against them. Because he is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is gracious to the wicked. He gives them time. But when that time has ended, then he responds righteously. He responds in judgment. And he is altogether righteous when he renders this judgment. Because that's part of his very nature. To say that God is righteous means that he does everything that is right. There's no injustice. There's only just judgment. Meaning that what they are receiving is exactly what they deserve. And not even going beyond that. They get what they deserve. And how can the Lord do that? Because to do anything contrary to that is to deny his own nature. And the Lord cannot deny himself. He is righteous. He is holy. He is good. He is, he is nothing like we are in that sense. Because what things that might show some, some reflex in us as far as being created in the image of God is flawed. He holds these attributes to their perfection. So there's no dark side to the Lord. He renders accordingly. And he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished in that that should have caused great fear in the hearts of his enemies. You've gotten away with this for years. But don't think that you can continue therein. Because the Lord sees and the Lord will render to all the guilty. 
that, that, that is establishing at the very beginning some of these, some of these characteristics of God that we find in, in the writings of Moses. We've been over them in the past you know, number of months, perhaps. But what happens when God is not just threatening or not just expressing who he is using this kind of language, but now these things are put into action? I'm going to show you what this means in this particular act that I'm going to do. That's what you're seeing in Nahum. You're seeing the attributes of God that have been put on display from Moses uh, in the law, all of that the Lord describing who he is, and now a situation is here in which the Lord is going to put it into practice for us. Demonstrate it on a grand scale. And this is what is going to give the people of God hope. This is their enemy. This is one, this is one nation that is, that is still causing them great harm. Again, when you read in First and Second Kings, specifically I think Second Kings, you're reading of, of everything that is happening with Assyria being right there at the doorstep of Judah. You actually read what had happened when, uh, when they had come to Hezekiah and they tell Hezekiah, look, none of the other gods of these nations were able to deliver them from us. You might as well not even try it. Because your God can't save you. Don't rely on your God. He can't save you. And then that night the Lord sent an angel and wiped out 185,000 of them. So they had to turn back. But this is an enemy. And the people of God, not only knowing what happened to the northern kingdom, but what has happened in their lifetime by this particular nation, would be encouraged by this to know that that God is going to vindicate his name he's going to vindicate his people we think of how is it that God's grace has, has really ended here because um, that is something that is difficult for us to wrap our minds around too but R.C. Sproul says this that God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite, and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. End quote. We serve a gracious God, and he is a gracious God to his people. We serve an infinite God, but as Sproul says, his grace is not infinite. There comes a time in which God's grace is ended. And then he responds accordingly. <clears throat> now, this is this is a, a little bit difficult for us also in this, in this respect, that the people of God, as they read and they hear the prophets speaking of the Lord wiping out their enemy, this is uh, an encouragement to them. This is a comfort to them. This is something that they themselves would probably have rejoiced in. 
Now, we look at this and we would say, well, we, we, we don't want to see anyone, you know, have the judgment of God, you know, rendered to them because we want to have hope for all people as long as they have breath in their lungs. And that is very true, and we should. We should have, as we've talked about in the past number of weeks, we should have compassion. We should have, have pity. And at the very same time, to pray that God will vindicate his name. And how, how do the two mesh together? Well, we go back to this very truth that surely the judge of all the earth will do right. And whatever is right in the sight of God is right. And if it, if it comes to a, a situation in which a system itself, a governing system, a wicked system is taken down, then may the Lord's will be done and may he vindicate his name. If the Lord does such a thing and it causes even the wicked and he uses this to cause the wicked in order to come to faith in Christ, seeing the magnitude of his judgment, then praise God and may his will be done. There is a sense in which the people of God should pray that the Lord will vindicate his name among his enemies. Sometimes it would be in this kind of a manner as what we find in the scripture, and other times it could be the Lord demonstrating who he is through converting the hearts of his great enemies. Whatever the Lord chooses to do. But we should be praying that God would vindicate his name. We should be praying that God would show his glory to his enemies. We don't want to be heartless in the sense of, of uh, praying that God's vengeance will, will come and just wipe everybody out. Yeah. In one sense, that would kind of be a bit of a, a selfish view. We deserve God's grace and you don't, so Lord, go ahead and just end it all. Take care of it. But we should be praying that God would vindicate his name. And the Lord can do whatever he desires to do in order to make that occur. And the thing is, regardless of how we think it should go or shouldn't go or whatever, he's going to do it. That's the thing that we go back to. That's, that's the very truth that gives us hope. It may be in our lifetime, it may not be. There's a great period of time here, this huge gap in between a faithful generation of God's enemies, who were once God's enemy, the faithful generation down to this particular godless generation. A lot of time in between. It may be in our lifetime, it may be in our children's lifetime, it may be in our grandchildren's lifetime, who knows? We, we have no idea. But the very thing that we look forward to and that we can honestly take joy in is that when we look at the world and we look at the world system, we look at everything going on in the nation, you don't win, is what we say. You will not be the victor. Because when our Lord raises up to come against his enemies, there will be none that can thwart his hand. And he can do it, and he will do it. That's the thing. It's not a matter of if. We use that language a lot. If, if, if. 
And the thing that we find in the scripture that is, that is right here blatantly confronting us is that he will. It's not if, he will. He will vindicate his name because the Lord will not give his glory to another. We have indeed a nation that is a, a, a godless nation. We see so much sin running rampant and it's discouraging. Uh, it, it is, uh, I guess it is a little, I don't know, I'll, I'll just say it's a little interesting at times seeing how uh, whether whether they try to pass laws to to make God's people not say certain things or and they think that this is going to work. We're going to pass a law and you can't say that. Well, that's not going to work. Why? Because God's people are not going to be silent on things that are blatantly wicked and against God's word. It's just not going to happen. And what happens when, when, when the people of God don't comply? Then you have persecution, you have various things like that. But, the, but we go back to this truth. You may be able to do this now, but you will not win. You will not be the victor because our God is an avenging God. And this can be something that cultivates in us an even greater desire for the lost. Turn and call upon God. Call upon Christ while you can. Because a time is coming in which his grace is going to end. And you're not going to know the grace of God. You're only going to know the vengeance of a holy and righteous God. Paul Washer had said once to uh, a group of of uh, students at a university they had called him there to interestingly i think it was it was a secular university but they called him there to talk about the christian faith of all people <laughs> paul washer <laughs> that was a really good choice but he said to the he said to the student body he said i'm going to tell you one of the most terrifying truths in all of scripture and everybody's just kind of waiting to hear, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And he, you know, he kind of worked it up a little bit. You know, are you ready? One of the most, the terrifying, the most terrifying truth in all the scripture. Here it is. And he says, God is good. And they, they kind of laughed. And he said, no, you don't understand. God is good. And you're not. And that is one of the most terrifying truths of all of Scripture. Because, because man is not, God's holiness cries out for justice. And it will be rendered accordingly and it, at his appointed time. We don't want to be those folks that, that are going around as, as many, uh, many that I knew growing up did uh, who were like, big, big advocates of the book of Revelation and you don't want to be here when all these crazy demons come out of the bottomless pit, do you? You don't want to be here whenever there's the hell on earth and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we, we don't want to be fear mongers. As Jason and I were talking before service and Jason had said, you know, that we often concentrate on, on, on the, the, the bad side of things rather than what is good. Those things that are good and right. 
We want to be those that concentrate on those things that are good and right. We don't want to just concentrate on the bad. We don't want to just express the bad. You do got to give the bad news, yes. But we don't want to be those fear-mongering people that only speak of God's wrath in, in the book of Revelation and etc. You want to be able to have compassion on people. You want to tell them the good news. It's good news. There's got to be a, a healthy balance there. And the very things that we tell them is the very things that we find within God's holy word. Our God is a jealous God. And he's an avenging God. And he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. However, Christ died that you could be forgiven. And that's what you tell him. Christ died that you may be forgiven. Can we honestly tell them that? Yes. Yes, we can. What about, what about the doctrine of election and all of that? Yes, that's absolutely true. But we can freely and honestly and genuinely tell each person that we come in contact with that Christ died for you. How can we do that? We don't know who the elect are. That's why. And, then, and what you find, especially within the Puritans, we think of the Puritans, we think of how staunch, staunchly Calvinistic they are and all this great stuff. And if they came to a passage of Scripture in which they were preaching on the doctrine of election and predestination, they were hammering it on. But then when it came time to preach on a gospel passage that, that expressed to the people to call upon the Lord, they were beckoning sinners to come to Christ. Sinners flee to Christ, they would say. And if you perish, then you perish in his arms. We give them the bad news, but we give them the good news. And one of the great graces that we find, at least in our day, is that things in our time, at least in my opinion, are not to the point as they were in Nahum's time for Assyria and Nineveh. The Lord had says, here, I'm bringing judgment. And it indeed happened a short time later when the Lord raised up the Babylonians and Chaldeans. And it did occur. But as of right now, it seems as if the Lord is tarrying. The Lord is withholding that this kind of judgment that people may still call upon him and that his grace may be extended to them. So we tell them the very nature of God that they can understand what God it is that is, that is commanding them to repent. We tell them about his holy nature. We tell them about his glory. But we tell them that he's slow to anger too. And that he has provided a way in Christ. This is what we tell them. And we pray that the Lord 
would do a work in their hearts and that the Lord would vindicate his name, not just on a grand scale, but that he would vindicate his name in that individual. There is much to learn from Nahum, many things that are very applicable to us in our own day to give us hope, not to cause us to be gloomy when we consider God's judgment, but to give us hope. Because sometimes we, 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 find, we, we find ourselves in situations as, we, as we're looking across the board of a number of different things in our nation, we feel helpless because we can't do anything. And we get agitated. That's probably one of the things that causes us to be more aggravated than anything is we don't have a voice oftentimes. We can't change a lot of these things. Many of the people that we find on the, the TV who are expressing this and saying this and whatever, we're never going to be able to talk to these people. And so it causes irritation in us and aggravation because we feel helpless. And I'm sure many of the people of God in Judah felt helpless, especially when Assyria was gaining some ground in Judah. But this is where our hope lies, is that God can do all things, and God will set all things right at his appointed time. That's where we have hope. He will vindicate his name, dear friends. So let us then remind ourselves of that, that we don't be overcome by sorrow or grief um, by whatever happens in the nation. And regardless, understand this, regardless of what happens in the nation, you still have the same mission. That doesn't change. The marching orders for the church doesn't change. Regardless, you preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them. Baptize them. We know what we're to be doing. So regardless of what law is passed or not passed, regardless of what celebrity says this, or it doesn't matter. Our mission doesn't change. Not one word from any celebrity or people of fame is going to change anything that the people of God are commanded to do by the Lord. Nothing. Can things get a little bit more difficult? Sure. What happens when things get more difficult? You do exactly what you're supposed to be doing. What happens if great persecution comes? And it, it, it could. What do we do? You do exactly what you're commanded to do. What if everything turns around? And maybe the Lord causes a, a great revival within the nation. That's wonderful because he can do all things. What do we do then? We do exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Nothing changes for the people of God. So don't let whatever is going on cause you sorrow and grief, first off, to lose the joy that you have in the salvation of God, to enjoy Him and concentrate yourself on something else, but to remember, Lord, you have shown grace to me. You have allowed me to come into your presence. Christ has died for me that I may know you. I pray for them that, that they would come to know Christ as well. And I pray, Father, that you would vindicate your name in whatever way that you decide to do so. 
And we rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in His wisdom. Rest in His righteous character. Rest knowing that our God will set all things right at His appointed time. So we will stop there and we will continue on next Wednesday. If you would, let's stand together. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you that you are indeed a gracious God. Thank you that you've shown grace to us so many times continually. This is, as the apostle says, this is that grace in which we stand. We are not deserving of it, but you freely extend it. And Father, we pray that you would help us Lord, to to extend that to others, to share your gospel, the gospel of your Son. Not just to speak of all the benefits that come with knowing Christ, but He is the benefit. He is the gift. Let us indeed share Christ, Father, and pray that you would work in the hearts of those that we share Him with. We pray ultimately... In your infinite knowledge, you know all things. You know your time in which you will set all things right. Let us hope in that. Let us rest in that, regardless of any other things that go on. Father, let us rest in your character, in your very nature, in your sovereignty. Let us rest in your justice, your righteousness. You are not a God who is idle. May that encourage our hearts, and may we be even even more encouraged as we continue in this particular book. Father, be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.